you ladies. Isn't there another verse or two of that you could sing? Maybe you could sing it again this evening. That would be all right. My, uh, my parents were part of what Tom Brokaw calls the greatest generation in his book about that special group of people. Some of you are part of that greatest generation as well, although there are fewer and fewer that are left with us at this point. The greatest generation is the generation of people that grew up in the Great Depression, fought in World War II where over 400,000 Americans lost their lives and another almost 700,000 were wounded. In 1946, 2.3 million couples, my parents included, got married. Anybody here get married in 1946? Okay, I didn't think there'd be, I thought there might be just one or so that might still be with us. But in 1946, there were more people more couples that got married during that year as men came and women came back from war and were ready to start families and build homes. There were more marriages that took place in this country in that 12-month period than any year before or since. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, the other thing that's amazing is, is the fact that an amazingly high percentage of those marriages stayed together for over 50 years. In 1996, the year that many of these folks were celebrating their golden wedding anniversaries, James Dobson wrote an article about them. I'm gonna read just a little bit of the article. Uh, he says, what is so impressive about this generation is that a, a high percentage of their marriages remain intact despite the dramatic social changes occurring since 1946. They weathered the sexual revolution during the 60s, the epidemic of easy divorce in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the family. When they stood at an altar and agreed to love one another till death do us part, that's precisely what they meant. Compared to today's newlyweds who are likely to stay married for only 7.2 years, those post-war couples have been models of stability and loyalty to those they love. That's why USA Today referred to them as the stick-to-it generation with a survivor mentality. One of the characteristics of these older Americans is that they learned self-control from the school of hard knocks. They grew up in the Great Depression when it was a struggle just to keep body and soul together. Then they went through the most terrible war in, the world, in world history, which killed or maimed many of their friends and loved ones. Large numbers of them experienced deprivation, inconvenience, and danger throughout their formative years. Thus, they learned how to deal with those occasions when life turned out to be more difficult than advertised. Perhaps that is why they didn't cut and run when the going got rough. These men and women valued liberty enough to fight and die to preserve it. And um, as we said, the, a number of many people died during that, that Second World War. But they also willingly placed limitations upon the ex exercise of their own personal liberty for the benefit of their marriages, their families, 
and their communities and their country. And this generation shows us a, an indispensable key to learning how to disagree agreeably. If we would have the unity that God desires us to have in our Christian homes and Bible-believing churches, we must learn to follow their example and, and even more importantly, Jesus' example of being willing to yield the exercise of our own personal liberties that we have in Christ. The passage that Pastor Mark read earlier is all about willingly limiting the liberties that we have in Christ. And we find in that passage, it gives us eight reasons for limiting the exercise of our liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus. And the first of those is to avoid becoming a, a stumbling block to a brother in Christ. He starts right out in verse 13, and he says, First of all, let us, not, let us therefore not judge one another anymore. Now, that word anymore indicates that, that was what was going on. People were being critical of each other within the church in Rome. And, and it's very easy for us to become critical people and to develop critical attitudes towards other people, especially those with whom we disagree about something. And basically, Paul's saying, stop it. And he, he uses a play on words here. He says, stop judging one another. And he takes the same Greek term here that's translated judge, and he says, judge yourself or, or make a resolution for yourself. You want to judge something, judge yourself. And here's the judgment that you should make. Here's the conclusion that you should reach, and it is that Determine that you will not make yourself a stumbling block to another believer in what you do in your life as a Christian. That, that's a pretty good resolution to come to, isn't it? That I don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody else. And we, th we think about a stumbling block. Well, what's a stumbling block? Well, that's something that you, as it indicates even here, that it's something that can cause you to fall. Something you trip over. I don't want somebody else to trip over me and my testimony, and the things that I do, the things that I choose to do in my life, and as a result of that, damage their own life as a believer. Uh, stumbling blocks cause people to fall physically sometimes, but he's talking here about spiritually, talking about people in their, their walk with God, their relationship with the Lord. And he's talking about you and I determining that we're not going to be anything in our life where we negatively affect somebody else's walk with Christ. We want to build people up, as it tells us later on in the passage, not cause people to fall. Now, when we think about this matter of, of, of not offending others or not causing others to stumble, we're not talking here about avoiding everything that somebody else may not like. We're not talking about pleasing everybody all the time because that's impossible, right? Uh, I, I like the story of the, the uh, man that, that's sitting on a donkey and, and his little boy is walking alongside the donkey. And some critical people come by and they say, look at that man. He's, letting his, he's making his kid walk while he rides on that donkey. So the man gets off the donkey, puts his son up there on the donkey, 
and uh, they walk down the road a little further, and somebody else says, look at that. There's that, that, that child sitting on the back of that donkey while his father's walking alongside. So they take son off the donkey, and they're walking along a little further, and somebody says, look at those foolish people. They're both walking along, and they've got that donkey, and nobody's even riding the donkey. I think the story may end up with them carrying the donkey, but you get the idea here. You can't ever please everybody all the time, whether you're talking about inside the church or outside the church, and that's not what it's talking about here. It's not having everybody like everything that you do or agree with everything that you do. That, that, that's impossible. What we're talking here, what, what the, the Lord's talking to us about in His Word here, is not doing things that are really going to have a negative effect upon somebody else. Spirit, something that's going to do them spiritual harm, not just something that they, they may not like. You know, people may think, well, preachers should always wear white shirts and ties and dark suits. Well, uh, I'm sorry. Maybe God made a whole lot of different colors. He made a whole rainbow. And the fact that somebody doesn't like your particular attire, that's not the biggest thing. I really think if I don't wear a white shirt and a tie, I don't think it's going to damage you spiritually. I sure hope not. Uh, but, but he's talking here about, about not causing spiritual damage to, to another believer and putting a stumbling block in, in somebody else's way. And uh, we, we find that, uh, that there's a number of different issues. Here in this particular context, he's talking about dealing with this matter of, of meat that had been dedicated before idols. There were some believers that said, Hey, an idol is nothing. And the fact that somebody says some words over the meat in front of an idol doesn't do anything to taint that meat. So there's nothing wrong with eating it. Well, there were other believers. Some of them were Jewish believers who had all kind of kosher rules that they followed as far as their, their, their food that they ate and things like that. And, and they, they wouldn't have anything to do with it. And there were also some that had, had come out of idolatry who had worshipped those idols and said, no, Wait a minute, what do you mean those idols are nothing? I used to devote myself to those idols. I can't eat that meat that's been dedicated before those. So there, there were differences there. And this passage in chapter 14 and, and a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 uh, talks about how to, how to deal with that and, and how to handle that issue so that believers could disagree agreeably. We don't have that as an issue today. An issue we have today is what about Christians drinking alcohol? Well, in, in the New Testament, there's nothing that forbids believers from drinking alcohol. Some of you would disagree with that. I don't see anything biblically that absolutely forbids believers from drinking alcohol, using it as a beverage. But there are a whole lot of good reasons for believers not to drink. A whole lot of good biblical reasons for believers not to drink alcohol. And, and here's one big one right here. To, to not become a stumbling block to other people. I may never be able to prevent my, my children from drinking or, or becoming alcoholics, but I'll tell you one thing, they're not going to say that they ever learned to drink by watching their dad do it. You know, I, I don't want to set that example before them. And, and another thing, how many people have drinking problems in this country? And, and praise God, when an alcoholic gets saved and is getting victory over it. And man, the last thing I would want is for an alcoholic that's having a victory over to come in and see a preacher drinking a Budweiser or any other brand for that matter and think, well, it's okay, and then 
lot of times people that are dealing with al alcohol problems, what's it take for them to lapse? Sometimes one drink. I don't want to set that example. I don't want to be a stumbling block to some other believer. I don't want to cause somebody else spiritual harm in their walk with the Lord. And we're called upon to, to make that resolution in our lives that we will not be stumbling blocks to other believers. We find as he goes on here, he also says we, we need to avoid grieving a, a brother. He lays out here a known fact. He says, I, I know and are convinced by the Lord Jesus there's nothing unclean of itself. Uh, God made everything, didn't he? Uh, God made alcohol, right? And there, there can be beneficial uses for alcohol, but, but, but man can take things and corrupt it. God made the, the, uh, the chemicals that they put together that, where they make painkillers. And, and I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life when I've been very, very thankful for painkillers. But man can take anything, and he can corrupt it, and he can pervert it, and he can twist it around. And as he says here, well, when it comes to a lot of those things, nothing's unclean of itself. But the fact of the matter is sometimes people in their conscience see that, that they, they believe there's a problem with something, that, that poor brother that came out of idolatry and... For, for him to eat meat that had been dedicated before those idols, that would have been a problem with his conscience. And he, he, didn't, he didn't need to be violating his, his conscience. And we find this is an important thing to know. We're not talking situation ethics here. But as it goes on, it says, for, for, for someone who considers something to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If he believes there's something wrong before God with eating that meat that had been dedicated before the idols, then he ought not to eat it, right? And we, we find that there's a possibility here of grieving a brother with food. Grieving means, means causing, causing harm. But once again, this idea of causing spiritual harm to a, a brother. And we find that as we move on, there, there's a greater priority to consider here. And in verse 15, he says, If your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. He gets to what's the important thing. The important thing isn't what I eat or drink. The important thing is the love that we have for believers and the impact that we have upon one another in our lives and the concern that we show for each other. And we ought to be concerned about how our actions, activities, things that we do in our life, how they affect brothers and sisters in Christ. So we need to avoid grieving other people. He, he makes it even stronger here, and he moves on from grieving, not grieving a brother or sister in Christ, and he talks about destroying a brother. Well, what's this destruction he's talking about? Well, the destruction he's talking about here is, is not causing somebody to to lose their salvation. That's not what he has in view here. He's talking about the loss of spiritual well-being. Somebody that, that loses their, their peace, their, their joy, their, their witness, their assurance. We're not talking about losing salvation or, or having eternal condemnation. But this is a very strong term. He's talking about doing serious damage to another believer. 
destroying another believer. And, and he talks here about the importance of another believer. It says, do not destroy, in the end of verse 15, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Now, now here we got two issues. We have the brother over here. How important is the brother? Man, he is so important that Jesus Christ died for him, right? That's important. Would you agree? Then you have food. Over on this side, you have some, some meat. You know, we can eat all kinds of things, can't we? And, and compared to a brother over here for whom Christ died, to whom I can either help build up or I can, help, I can do spiritual damage in his life, possibly, sometimes by what I eat. How important is the food? How important is the drink? Uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, where's the brother for whom Christ died? Would you put him up there to 10? Uh, on a scale of one to, or 0 to 10, where would you put the food? 0. Wait, which is most important here? More important than, than what we eat or what we drink is our brothers and sisters. In Christ. In fact, he moves on here and he says, here's what really counts. In verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink. Serving Christ isn't so much about what we eat or what we drink. The, the important things we find are righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. You know, God forbid that there be a, a, a big controversy and a big bickering within the church over eating and drinking and over issues like this. What really is of importance? It's, it's righteousness. Having the righteousness that we have through Christ by, by knowing Him as Savior, by, by living that righteous life, walking in obedience to Him, living right before the Lord, experiencing peace in, in, our, own Christian in our own Christian walk and the joy of the Holy Spirit. What, what characterizes our, our lives, what characterizes our relationships, well, what characterizes our church? You know, I, I sure hope that when people think about the First Baptist Church of Carroll, they say there's a group of people at peace with each other, at peace with God, and at peace with each other. There, there, there's a group of people that, that are striving to do right before God. They, they, they want to be righteous, and they, they have been declared righteous by God through their faith in Christ. And there's people that have, that have joy. Remember what joy is? Joy is that deep-seated sense of well-being that comes from knowing how well-off we really are. Those are things that are of importance in our individual lives, in our relationships in our family, in our relationships here in this local church. That these are the things we need to be characterized, not known even by what we eat, what we don't eat, what we, we, we drink, what we don't drink, but rather characterized by this kind of a relationship with each other and with the Lord. And he brings into this in verse 16, he says, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as, as evil. Don't let something you consider good to develop into something that, that causes evil speaking towards the church and towards the cause of Christ. You and I live before a watching world, don't we? And people are watching us as Christians. People are looking at, at, at us as a church. 
And we need to be careful as we, we disagree with each other that we make sure that the watching world doesn't see that we're making big issues out of minor things and, and doesn't see that we have, have wrong motivations and wrong priorities and we have a bunch of people wanting to get their own way and a bunch of people just wanting to, to do things selfishly, but rather, oh, that the world would see us as those that are committed to serving Christ. Those that, a group of people where we say it's not about us, but it's about the Lord. It's not about what I want and what I can do for myself. It's rather about making our lives count for eternity, making our lives count for Christ. By the way, the freedom that we have in Christ is not the liberty to do whatever we want, but rather it's the ability to do that we sh what we should. God gives us the... You talk about freedom. When is a railroad train most, uh, most uh, free? When it's on the constraint of the railroad tracks, right? It gets off the tracks into the cornfield. What good is it? Well, when's an airplane most free? When it's rolling along on the runway or when it gets up into the clouds? When, when's a believer most, in the best way, experiencing his liberty and expressing his liberty? Well, it's when he's striving to please the Lord and, try, and, and striving to build up other believers, not just striving to get my way to do what I want, but rather really trying to be what the Lord would have me to be. We find that that ought to be the reputation we want to have before a watching world as individual Christians, as a Christian family, and as a church. And how do you have that? By being willing to yield rights, being willing to not demand on exercising our particular Christian liberties that we have. We find that we're to build up one another. We limit our ability, our liberties to build up one another rather than destroying the work of God. We want to build each other up, not destroy. Just imagine if somebody came into this auditorium here that God helped us to build back in and start using in 2005. And just suppose they came in with a bunch of axes and buckets of, of red paint. And they just started dumping that paint all over the place. And they started chopping at the walls and chopping at the pews and breaking out the lights and doing all that. What would your reaction to that be? Say, man, what? that's ridiculous. Why, is, why would somebody do something like that? You know, the, the, people worked hard. We think about the, the, the contribution, the money that was given. Just go to the pulpit, would you, Bob? We think about all the work that went in, and for somebody to, to take that and, and, and damage it, how horrible that would be, and, and senseless. Well, we think about another believer, we're talking about somebody who is the work of God. You know, we're, we're his workmanship, right? When we come to know Christ, we're told in, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. And we're told it's not of works, it's a gift of God, uh, not of works unless anybody should boast. Then it goes on and it says that we are his workmanship created unto good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. The important thing to notice there, we're God's workmanship. You know, we're created by him, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That's true of ourselves physically. We're also his workmanship spiritually. 
Christ went to the cross so the weeping could become the children of God. And we ought to recognize that brothers and sisters in Christ are important. And, and we don't want to destroy the work of God. We don't want to damage the work of God. We can't take away somebody else's salvation, but we can certainly, we can certainly hurt them and their walk with the Lord. And we don't want to do that. We, we limit our liberties to avoid producing great negative consequences. And there, there's some good self-limitations here. Verse 21, he says, It's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Yeah, there's some good self-limitations here. And there's some consequences to prevent. We don't want to have an impact on others where we cause them to stumble or we really hurt them or, or we weaken them. What's our goal? We want to build each other up. That's what the Lord wants us to do. We need to avoid also bringing harm to ourselves. In verse 22, it says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. You have faith about the, the, that meat sacrifice? There's nothing wrong with it? Well, have that with, between you and the Lord. But, but be careful about the damage you might do to others. And even on top of that, he says, happy is he who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Be careful. Be careful that you don't damage your own life spiritually. You know, there, there are folks that, that think they're, they can handle certain things. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I can handle it. You know what? Nobody ever started out when they took their first drink, saying, I'm going to become an alcoholic. Does it ever happen? People don't start out that way, but boy, it turns into problems. You know, and, and there are things we can get involved in, and, and the Bible says anything that controls us, it, it's, it's wrong. We shouldn't have anything that have a, have a control in our life. And we need to recognize that. There, there, there's a danger that we go off in, in the wrong direction here and that we damage our own walk with God. We need to be very, very careful about that. We need to understand our Christian liberty. We need to be careful of the danger of being controlled by anything. We need to be controlled about the, the slipping into selfishness and pride and animosity towards others. We need to be careful about slipping into the area where we think we stand. You know, I'm strong. I can handle it. What's the warning in Scripture? He that thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. fact of the matter is we're all pretty weak, aren't we? We need to be leaning on the Lord day by day by day. It's good to not use, misuse our Lord. Lastly, verse 23 says we need to be willing to limit our liberty because it says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. You know what it's saying here? It's saying you, when you and I do something, we need to be absolutely sure, convinced from Scripture, that it's right. We, we don't do things that we're not sure about. If our conscience troubles us about something, don't do it. Now, the, our conscience is not an infallible guide. That bumper sticker that says, let your conscience be your guide, don't believe it. Uh, the conscience is not an infallible guide. But you know what? God has given us our conscience as a, wor uh, a warning system. 
And if our conscience troubles us about something, it tells us in this passage of Scripture, listen to your conscience. Don't go against your conscience. Don't violate your conscience for a couple of reasons. First of all, you can sear your conscience. Now, sometimes our consciences need to be reprogrammed through further study of the Word of God and finding out what's right, what's wrong. But, but we don't just go against our conscience. We need to walk by faith. We need to be absolutely convinced that what we're doing is right because as it tells us here, whatever is not of faith is what? It's sin. It's sin. And once again, we're not talking situation ethics here. We're talking about some good principles for guiding us and directing us in our, our walk with the Lord. We have the sin of not walking in faith. We come down to, as we look at this passage of Scripture, what's most important? Well, well, you and I are allowed to eat or drink because we got liberty in Christ. Is that what's really most important? I'll tell you what's most important. The gospel of Christ. The cause of Christ. Relationships with other believers. That's what counts. Standing in love before a watching world where we have a, a positive testimony for Christ. And we're not known as a family of Christians who fight with each other all the time. Or, or a church where they're just always fussing and fighting with each other all the time. One of the ways that we learn to disagree agreeably is by having a willingness to yield the exercise of some of our liberties that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ but just because we're allowed to do something doesn't necessarily mean that we should, that it's the best thing to do. Most important is that we glorify the Lord. That's what the Christian family's about. That's what the Christian life's about. That's what the church is about, glorifying the Lord, not exercising all the liberties that we may have in Christ. And you want an example? Remember what Jesus did for us. What liberty did Jesus have? Did he have the liberty to keep sitting on that throne of heaven and never come into this earth? He certainly did. But he gave that up. Did he have the liberty not to go to the cross but instead call 10,000 angels to wipe out those Roman soldiers? Yeah, he had that. But he willingly gave it up so you and I could have forgiveness of our sins and become the children of God and live with him forever and ever and ever in the place that he's prepared. And he calls upon us, follow his example, be willing to yield even the exercise of our liberty, be willing to yield our rights, if you want to put it that way, to glorify the Lord and to help brothers and sisters in Christ grow and to walk with the Lord. Father, we thank you what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. Father, we thank you that he didn't hang on to what he could have hung on to, but he gave it up, became fully man, took our sin upon himself as he hung there on that cross, and he did it all for us. God, help us in our lives to be about not living for self, but living for you, living for brothers and sisters in Christ living for the ministry of the local church that you've allowed us to be a part of, living for others in our, in our family and in our church family, and most of all, 
living for Jesus that we might glorify him. And may that be accomplished in our lives, in our families, in our homes, and in our church. And we will give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.